Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today we are honored to be joined by the one and only Rabbi Beryl Wine, the author of a new book called Staying the Course, and the author of many popular historical works. I would call Rabbi Wine the preeminent Jewish historian of our time. I hope you don't mind if I say that. You can say it, but it doesn't say much about our time. <laughs> But it, so it's an honor to spend a few minutes with you talking about the new book. Okay. And also to hear, I know you've told your story many times. You've spoke about your Abayim, about the people who have influenced you. But perhaps you could give us today a, a unique perspective as well. So let's start with the new book. Well, the new book, uh, Staying the Course, uh, is uh, the book about the response of uh, traditional Judaism, orthodoxy, to the challenges of modernity from 1820 to 1940, that 120-year period when really the Haskalah and Reform and other Zionism, all of that began. And it goes country by country because the response differed from Germany, let's say, to uh, Hungary, to uh, Poland, to Lithuania, to the United States, to the United Kingdom. There were different responses. Now, is that a period of time that you did not address in any of your prior books? Only generally. This is much more detailed. Mm -hmm. uh, if I say, say so myself, the book... Uh, the book is very relevant to now because, in effect, it shows us how did we get to here now. I mean, all the fights that exist in the Jewish world today are not new. You're fighting battles that are 150 years, 200 years old. Many of the battles that you're fighting have long been decided, but Jews never let go. So we keep on fighting them. But you have to know what was the fight about, what was the response, which response worked, and which was less successful. And uh, the interesting thing that I found from all of this, you know, an author also learns something from his own book. To, to a certain extent, a successful book writes itself. Uh, what I learned is that uh, all of the responses were valid, but none of them were completely successful, which is uh, really human nature. And it also uh, gave me an understanding, it always bothered me, you read in Tanakh, for instance, Jewish people are pagans, they're worshiping idol. How could it be? How could it be? Uh, Achav, uh, the king of uh, Israel, uh, has a kosher, glad kosher kitchen. Eliyahu eats from his kitchen. And he's uh, promoting Avodah When you read this book, you understand that how that happened, how Jews became socialists and communists and reform and 
all sorts of things, atheists and agnostics and, the, and kept the kosher home. Kind of a dichotomy of sorts. It's a, because the human, the, the human being is capable of uh, enormous contradictions within one's personal life. Now, in, in writing the brand new book, did you have to engage in new research? Is this material well, that you already had well, kind of compiled uh, uh, over the unfortunately, years? Unfortunately, my, uh, my eyesight has disappeared. So it's difficult for me to do brand new research. Though what I do is I listen to a lot of lectures from other, from, from historians, from uh, Jewish professors, from other, and I get a flavor from it. I get an understanding from it. Mm-hmm. There was one book that I had read to me called Genius and Anxiety, which deals with uh, uh, that period of time. And uh, a lot of it is from memory. I mean, thank God uh, we still remember. And uh, then I put it together, but I got a... I received a lot of it. If you think about things, you receive new insights. You see things that you never, you knew the facts, but you never were able to put it together. And in writing a book, the facts become secondary to putting back together the entire pattern of what's involved. I want to talk about, you mentioned the flavor of the history. I will say myself, as a 20-year-old Bacher, I undertook to listen to your set of history tapes. Yeah. At that time, they were tapes. Right, tapes. And um, many people will say that there's no other such recording set that we possess in the from world of a, a documentation of from history. Right. And what I noticed, and I, I think you'll concur, is that so much of what you give over is not just the historical fact, but the flavor of the time. That's right. And I think that's what I always try to do, because I think well, facts are, uh, that's what makes history boring. And there's no uh, word that's a greater curse for an author than boring. You hear it from your children, right? Daddy, I'm bored. What can you do, you know? But the flavor makes it, uh, makes it uh, less boring. It makes it relevant. I mean, that what I try to do with all history is to make it relevant. You know, I, I try to put the person into that period of time. How would that person feel? Mm-hmm. And that's what this book does. What would I have done in the 1840s in Lithuania when my great-great-great-grandfather was there? Would I have become a Balmusser? Or would I have gone to Slabotka? Or would I go to the teacher's seminary in Vilna? I don't know. How do you know? It also uh, removes an element of judgmentality that exists within the Jewish world. It's easy to be judgmental judgmental about... uh, things that happened a hundred years ago because you're looking at it in perfect hindsight. I mean, that's the Gemara. The Gemara says the, uh, that uh, the great king Menashe came to uh, uh, an Amora in a dream 
And the Amora asked him, he said, in the yeshiva we study today this and this thing on uh, how to make a bracha when you cut the bread, etc. Nobody knew how to do it. And the Higmanashi in the dream explained to him this complicated Allah, one, two, three. So he said to him, I don't understand if you're such a great scholar and you can interpret the halachas so easily. How did you uh, worship idols? You know, that it's what a shtutz to bow down to metal and to wood. And, and uh, Menashe answers him in the dream, if you would have lived in my time, he said, you would have picked up the hem of your garment to run faster to worship the idol. So how could a person be a communist, right? After 75 years in the Soviet Union, after 80 million dead, after uh, Chairman Mao, after all of that, what, some of Dreytakop, how could it be? You see, it can be, right? You can see that socialism hasn't worked in any country in the world. Oh, we're going to be a socialist country. So if you have that sense of relevancy and you're not judgmental about people and about things, I, I always tell one story that Leon Trotsky, the Russian communist leader who was assassinated by Stalin, so Trotsky's Hebrew name was Bronstein, his Jewish name. And he was, uh, his family always married Jews. No intermarriage. Uh, Trotsky had a great, a grandson that emigrated to Israel and was uh, interviewed on Israeli television. I saw the interview. Not that I have a television set, but I saw the interview. So he's a Jew with a beard, with a big Rabboni Shiyamuke. He's the real deal. So the Israeli interviewer, they were talking about this and everything, and he took the back, uh, they took back the name and they. So she said, what would your grandfather say if he saw you now? And he answered her as follows. He said, he would understand me completely because he was a believer and I'm a believer. He simply believed in the wrong thing, but he was a believer. And to me, that was so touching he could have said, you know, he was a Russia, which he was. And he destroyed Jews that he did. You know what I mean? He said he was a believer. He believed in the wrong thing. If you believe in the wrong thing, then everything is possible. But you have to realize that it's possible to believe in the wrong thing. And uh, I think that that would be the value of reading this book. You would see how many Jews believed in the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. But I think you would have an empathy with them as to how they got there, what happened. The book also has great pictures in it. Did you ever see a picture of Yisrael Salanter? 
No. Well, if you buy the book, you'll see one. <laughs> I had uh, a wonderful woman who is an archivist for the Israel Museum do the research on pictures for the book. Dug it up from the Russian files. They had a picture of him. Okay, you see the aristocracy. I mean, he, when you see it, you know Musser. How the beard and the, the hat, the whole thing. But speaking of people who believed in the wrong things, we don't have to go back to the 1800s. I know in many of your lectures and articles and books, you speak and discuss your youth growing up yeah. in Chicago. Right. If you could take a moment to speak about that, where you didn't expect to become a rabbi or a historian, and also those who impacted you, like Remendel Kaplan, for example, who I know you've spoken about many times. If you could take a moment to speak about those who at that time didn't believe in the right things and those who did who were from the minority. It wasn't even a question of belief as much as it was a question of societal pressures. I, there were a hundred Jewish boys on the block, my friends, in Chicago. I was the only Shabbos. I was a Shabbos because my father was a rabbi. And my mother was a very forceful woman. And uh, when I was nine, ten years old, and my friends would come on Saturday afternoon and knock on the door and say, can Beryl come out and play with us? She would say, no. Come tomorrow. And how did you feel about that at the time? I felt terrible. But I had two redeeming features. I had my Zayde, Rabbi Rubenstein, who was of Alojaner Talmud, and it was love incarnate. And I could never imagine doing anything that would hurt him. And he would explain to me that uh, how important it was, Torah and observance, etc. So that was one thing that, one anchor in my life. Because I think grandparents can be of greater influence than parents. It's part of the dichotomy in our world that we have, you know, we put the grandparents away. They should just give gifts and go by. And the second thing was that I had all Eastern European rabbeim. Isaiah put me into the yeshiva when I was 11 years old. Now that was an educational and social disaster. But it saved me. Because I was this year with 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds. So I'll tell you a story. It's not a nice story. Maybe you can edit it out if you don't want it. But the first day I wasn't there, and the kids were making fun of me, before the Rebbe came in. The Rebbe was a wonderful Jew by the name of Rabbi David Silver who later uh, I knew in Yerushalayim and Bait Vagan was an outstanding, wonderful person. So I was so embarrassed and I felt so badly that you'll excuse me, I vomited in the classroom, which is a great way to start your educational career. The Rebbe came in and he saw what happened. He came over to me, 
and he took me in the bathroom and cleaned me off and got the janitor to clean up the room. And he said to me, he said, Beryl, don't feel bad over what happened. It happens. He said, I'll tell you my story. He said, I was 11 years old, and my father brought me to the Mechina in Slabotka. So the Mashgiach said, before we give him the Mechina, etc., first let him hang up his clothes in the closet and uh, eat breakfast. And after breakfast, we'll see where to put, what to do. So he said, okay, so I hung up my coat. She said, I hung up my coat the way an 11-year-old kid hangs up a coat. One sleeve in, one sleeve out, the backwards, forwards. Okay, I hung it up on a hook. Down on a hanger on a hook. After breakfast, the Mashgiach came over to me and said, Ravdovidl, that's the way you hang up a coat? He said, if that's the way on the outside, can you imagine what's doing on your inside? That was my introduction, he said, to Slavotka. When he told me that, so he, the Rebbe and I had a connection, right? He hung up the coat wrong, uh, he, I spat on the floor, whatever. And they were so compassionate, and they understood every bocher, and they let the bocher be the bocher. They didn't, uh, then there was no such thing as you do what the Rebbe says. They didn't say. They never told you who to go out with, they never told you who to marry, they never told you what to do with your life. They taught. But they were an overriding influence on your life. I mean, if you sat by Remendel as I did for two and a half years, you never again could read a newspaper the way it was printed. He invented fake news before Trump ever thought of it. <laughs> or if you were by Rabbi Christworth, so uh, you had the, the whole Torah unroll, you know, it was like going Hagba every day on the whole Torah, right? You, know what, you never knew what was coming. But it was all with a warmth and an enthusiasm and a love. So, uh, you know, that's, that, that's what saved me. So I, I, I never thought I'd be a rabbi because the old uh, orthodox apparatus in Chicago collapsed in 1948 when the neighborhood changed. There were 42 orthodox synagogues. Only six survived, and not many of them became semi-conservative, all sorts of things. But what you're saying it may be somewhat of an anomaly to some, because people's perceptions of the Rabbeim of old were not the warm, endearing characters that you're portraying. Because there were people who were not. I was lucky. Mm. There undoubtedly were, there were people who were... Uh, Rabbeim, who should not have been Rabbeim, who were bitter people. Uh, it's, uh, it, so to speak, was the luck of the draw, right? right. You, didn't, you right. didn't know. So I, I wasn't going to be a rov. My father told me when I was 21 years old, 
He told me, he said, I have no money to give you. And you have to earn your way in life. Nobody in my time, nobody knew that the father-in-law was going to support you. That, that secret was not revealed to us. And uh, there were no kolalim that paid. I mean, Rabaran had 27 students in Lakewood. So he, so he, I went to law school at night. I stayed in the yeshiva till 5.30 every day. And then I went to DePaul Law School at night. And I passed the bar, and I got a job as a lawyer, and I was going to be a lawyer. I hated being a lawyer. A lawyer sees people at their worst. Never sees them at their best. They're all, you know, they come to you that you should be able to outfox the other guy, or you get the deal, or you do, you know. And I had almost all religious Jews as clients, and I look back at it, and I, I think that that was a miracle that it didn't uh, push me over the edge. Because I, I have terrible stories. Money is, money is a uh, terrible challenge. So what, what ultimately moved you in the rabbinic direction? So what happened was that Rabbi Christworth always, uh, I don't know how to put it, he used to call me my, my barrelet. I mean, I, he, he liked me. He gave me a personal smicha, yodin yodin, and uh, he believed in me. So he would, uh, even when he was the rabbi in Antwerp, he would communicate with me, especially when he came to Chicago on an occasional visit, and he would say, Mirham uh, Genug lawyers, there are enough lawyers in the Jewish world. You should be a rub. And I would tell him, Rebbe, you know, I got, right now I'm, I'm married already, I have four little kids. I gotta make a living when, when there are no Rabbonus. Rabbi Kaiser had a Talmud Muvuk, Rabbi Aryeh Rotman, who uh, founded, was the head of Merkaz Torah in Yerushalayim, not a Mutzadik, a Godel. So one day, I, so as part of my law, I was an investor in a business, and it was there of Thanksgiving, and I went to the business to give empire turkeys to the workers. And I'm sitting in the office and Rabbi Rotman shows up. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I came to see you. I flew in all the way from Miami Beach. I came to see you. What do you want from me? So he says, I'm leaving Miami Beach. I'm going to Long Beach. Rabbi Chrysler told me that you should be the rabbi in Miami Beach. You should be my successor. I said, what are you, crazy? How can that be? Now, if you knew Rabbi Rotman, the word no did not exist in the English language. He would wear you down. See, I said, I got to go home. It's, it's Chicago. It's Arab Thanksgiving. The traffic. My, I got to help my wife. He said, I'm not going to leave until you give me your hand. Give me a kiosk off that you'll be a candidate. So there was no way for me to escape. 
So I, I did it. I never thought anything would come of it. This was Thanksgiving, November. In the middle of May, yeah, nothing happened in the interim. In the middle of May, I get a call from Miami Beach, from this little congregation, that would I come down and be the scholar in residence for them for Shavuos. And that would be the probe. And they even offered to pay to bring me down. Now, my wife knew that I would, didn't like being a lawyer. She knew it. And there was always, there was always tension in the house. I mean, it was, you come home, you're tense, and, you know, it, it communicates itself. So she said, well, why don't I, I said, you know, she said, we'll try it. Why not? You know, you always wanted to be, you could be, you know. Her father was a rabbi in Detroit. My father was a rabbi in Chicago. My zaydu, you know. So I went down there. And I liked the people very much. But it was a... A storefront shul. They had 39 families. Rabbi Rotman and his genius arranged that he had, he had proxy votes in his pocket to make sure that I got elected. <laughs> so I was elected by the overwhelming, uh, I think, uh, vote of 21 to 18. And we moved down there. August 1st, we certainly couldn't meet the payroll. We had some savings left from Chicago to survive. But then I put myself into that show. And we got members, and we, I raised money, and we built a building that still exists. And I taught... Uh, Gratis at the uh, Miami Beach Masifta, 11th grade every day. I have Talmudium until today for Miami Beach. And our whole lives changed. And one of the highlights of being in Miami Beach, for those who have read and heard from you, is, is that I knew all the Gedolim. The Gedolim all, all that you the, met. All the great Rabbonim in, in the world came, because uh, the rich people came then in the winter in Miami Beach. Then there were kosher hotels. It wasn't like today, condos, or et cetera. And uh, so I was a driver for the Ponevizhirov. I had many conversations with the Satmar Rebbe, the Kapishnitzer, Rebbe Yaakov, Ramesha. I mean, if I would have stayed in Chicago and they wouldn't know me, I wouldn't know them. So to me, it was a... Uh, so. I'm very, uh, I'm great, grateful to heaven that uh, they pushed me that way. And one of the special people you knew, you actually alluded to before, was your rabbits and Jackie's father, Rebbe Levine, the Rav of Detroit. He was... Uh, Could you talk about him for a moment? He was the ultimate literature rabbi. Abal Musser was the calmest man I ever met. Never got angry, no matter what. Only saw him angry once in all the years that I knew him. 
and he uh, he was he he was a cloud Yisrael Jew. So as long as he was the rabbi in Detroit, for instance, the conservative rabbi there did not allow Gittin to be given by anybody else except my, except my father-in-law. Which is a remarkable thing. And uh, he... Uh, He had in himself again that 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 uh, Lithuanian Jewish ability to uh, be self-effacing, mm-hmm. not to pursue honor, to love people. He really loved people. Now he was Zeicha Yeshvere Blazer Levine to learn by the Chavetz Chaim. He learned by the Chavetz Chaim. Did he ever share with you reminiscences of, of when he was with the Chavetz Chaim? Yes, a few stories. I don't know what I should tell you the story because it'll ruin the reputation of art school. <laughs> but he told me once, he told me a few things, but I'll tell you one story. That he said it was Son Gedalia. And the Chavetz Chaim had no official position in the yeshiva. He wasn't the Mashgiach, and he wasn't the Rosh Yeshiva, he had no official position, but he used to daven the yeshiva. So after davening Tzom Gedalia, he went to the lectern and he said, uh, there's a town three miles from here, four miles from here, a little shtetl, and the mikveh there is not in order. And the balabatim there are not, they're, they're not moving with alacrity to fix it. And it's a big mikshul. People, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it can't go on like that. So he said, I would like a volunteer that would be willing to go Yom Kippur to be in this town and to speak to them on Yom Kippur that they should hurry up and fix the mikveh right away. And then he sat down. My father was nearby. Uh, one of the uh, students in the yeshiva came over to the Chofetz Chaim, and he just said, you know, this, I have a problem with this tosfus. And they would discuss the tosfus for 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, as the young man was turning to leave, the Chavetz Chaim said to him, uh, did you hear what I said? Did you hear my announcement? He said, yes, Rabbi, I heard it. He said, maybe you'll go. So he said, Rabbi, how, how can I leave the yeshiva and Yom Kippur to go to a dorf, to go to a town, a shtetl, where the Balabatim don't even care about the mikveh. So the Chofetz Chaim turned away from him and spat on the floor. He said, Pui on your tasteless. Okay. That's how Jews thought.
That's the clown you soiled you. So, uh, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. I was fortunate in the family that I was born into. I was fortunate in the family I married. The Lord has fulfilled my wishes. He, he brought me to Yerushalayim. I never dreamt I'd be a rov in Yerushalayim. Can you imagine, you know, to tell you that 150 years ago, you're going to be a rov in Yerushalayim, you have a fine kehillah mm. in a Jewish state. Me, me, Leila, Avraham, me, Nico, Bonim, Sora. So I have no regrets. But the book... Uh, the book is a valuable book. Um, naturally, every author thinks all of his books are valuable. And maybe they are. And books have mazel. Like everything else, say for Torah So maybe a book has immediate mazel, maybe has mazel a hundred years later, maybe never has mazel. But at least, at least I got it out there. Well, your books have had tremendous mazel, and you're talking about being grateful. Yeah. Gantz Kleisrol is grateful to you for infusing our history with the flavor that we mentioned before, with giving us a, a geschmack to appreciate where we come from. In order to know where we're going, we That's have to know right. where we come from. You have to know from. who you are, right? And who we are. So the motto of my foundation is telling the story of the Jewish people to the Jewish people. You got to know who you are, right? You know, the people in a book, they don't know what book you're talking about. And perhaps in a different uh, conversation, at a different time when there's more time, we could discuss what we could do to give the younger generation an appreciation for history. But perhaps we'll leave that for another discussion. I want to thank you, Rabbi Wine, for my pleasure, and thank you, Rabbi, for being here. You'd be well. It's an honor to speak to you, and we give you a bracha. You should continue inspiring us for many more years amidst good health. Amen. You too, Kol Tuv Thank you.